Hi, everyone. It's Melinda Garvey with the See It To Be It podcast. This week, we have another great interview with an incredible role model. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the See It To Be It podcast. I'm your host, Melinda Garvey. And this week, like every week, I am bringing you another incredible, relatable role model, someone who is willing to share her path so that you can see your path and help get those role models and all that great advice to you. And this week is no different. I am excited to welcome Joy Altamare. She is the Chief Engagement and Brand Officer at EHE Health. And she has had a very interesting and fun career in the advertising and branding world in New York. That's pretty exciting. So welcome. (laughs) We're excited to hear your story. Thanks, Melinda. So excited to be here. Happy to do this and happy to really, like you said, talk about the path that we all take that's very different from where we start and share like some of the things I've learned. Excellent. And to get started on that, I always like people to go way back. When you were growing up, what was your big dream? What did you think you'd be doing? And how did you sort of get on the path that you're on now? Well, when I was growing up, I grew up in um, a small town called Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I would say at that point, those dreams weren't my own. They were my parents. My dad is an immigrant from Jamaica. And so I thought I would be a doctor. (laughs) That's what he wanted me to be. And he really invested in my education. He and my mom worked really hard to send me to an all-girls school for six years, which is really hard in the South. I was one of three people of color in my class of 92 students. So they made a lot of sacrifices, put me in a lot of situations that would mimic, I think, the real world, but was very uncomfortable during that transition of 13, 14, 15. But at that time, when I graduated from high school, I went into college pre-med. It was going to be a pediatric cardiovascular surgeon. Wow. With the babies who had long heart issues and really hopefully trying to help keep them alive much longer than they would have otherwise. So that's what I wanted to be, (laughs) or I thought, right? And then I went to college and I was doing the things that you do. I was taking biology and science and all of the things that you do pre-med. And that the summer after my freshman year, I decided I didn't want to do another lab rotation. I didn't want to be inside. And I was walking past the internship building. Again, I'm 42. So this is before internships were all on the internet and you could just apply. You had to go and pull off a binder, go through each page, see what you've missed. I grabbed one that was talking about communication internships. And there was this group called the Ad Club Foundation. And they had an internship for people of color who were interested in staying in Boston. I went to college at BU, so staying in Boston. And they offered a stipend, they gave you an internship, and they paid you. So the stipend was for housing and food, and then they additionally paid you for your time. And I remember going to my parents and saying, I'm not going to do what you want me to do this summer. I'm the only child as well. So they were like, no, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm just going to try this summer and see if there's other things outside of medicine. And they were like, sure, okay, whatever. You're going to come back to medicine. And I interned at an agency called Ingalls. It's no longer around in Boston, but they were the agency that was given the TJX account. And they were really trying to rebrand it. So at 18, 19, I was in this amazing, energetic environment, working on a brand that was really trying to get people who looked like me, young, 
Gen Xers at the time and consider TJ Maxx. And that's how I was introduced to advertising and branding and marketing. And I left medicine. I still have a, no one really knows this. I have an undergraduate degree in biology. So I finished that from my parents, but I switched my major into marketing and the rest is history. I fell in love with it. And so at 19, everything I thought that I would be before completely changed. And it was the best decision I made for sure. And did your parents finally reconcile with that? (laughs) I think when I hit in my 30s, they reconciled it. They were very much concerned about the lack of diversity in advertising and marketing. They were very concerned about the emails I was sending them at like two in the morning because I was still at work and I was just like, I don't have time to talk to you, but hey, I just want to tell you I love you. They were very concerned about what the low pay that I was making. They thought, was it just because you were a woman and a woman of color? So they were very concerned for a long time because I was really living on pennies for a long time and working these long hours, traveling and having these great experiences. I went to three Super Bowls. I went to Cannes. I went to so many amazing things. I was in photo shoots, et cetera. And I was getting promoted. They were like, but you're not making that much money. You still are barely scraping by. And around 26, 27, it started to shift. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't like crying about living with two roommates anymore. I can't live by myself. And then I started to go into marketing and then they reconciled. They were like, okay, we see what you're doing. But forever they were look at a commercial and say, did you make that? <laughs> I'm like, no, I work on the account <laughs> side. Or they'd say, I don't understand you're in these meetings. What are you talking about? You know, they just didn't get it. But thankfully with the internet and I guess television and production, they understand there's different sides. And now they are so proud, you know, especially because I'm working on the brand side and it's more tangible for them. They understand what I'm doing. My mom travels with me. My daughter travels with me. So she sees it a lot more. And they're very happy that I'm not asking for money, that I can actually (laughs) give them money if they needed it. So they reconciled it. That's awesome. And the funny thing is, is that I didn't have any medical background, but my path is much like yours in terms of advertising. I interned in college, you know, with an ad agency. And my first job out of college was working in DC at Earl Palmer Brown on the US Air account. And so here I am working on this $40 million account right out of college. And it was fair war. So this was the early nineties, right? I mean, two, three in the morning. We were, you know, cutting and pasting. Yes. To get into the newspaper. People don't understand that. And I'm 10 years older than you, but it's like that same. And I lived with four roommates. But you never saw them. It's like, you got to get like three levels up to make anything. My first job, I worked at Arnold, right? And I was a assistant account coordinator, whatever, like the entry level job. But I got overtime. So I was like, sure. And then that was back when advertising agencies were like, you know, if you are here after eight, you can take a car home, we'll feed you. It was like very different than it is now, but they wanted you to stay. And I remember I was working and I was getting overtime. So it was great because I was like, it's okay. This is my base, which was nothing, but the overtime is helping me. And then I got promoted just one (laughs) level up and I no longer qualify for overtime, but I was working the same hours. I was like, this is horrible. I need to go back to that first job where I was getting overtime. You're right. And people didn't really understand, like you put in these hours and this was again, pre-internet. I remember we, 
I worked on an international account. And so we had to have a Monday morning, 7 a.m. status. I had to go in Sunday night, get all of the status from fax, the fax machines, right? Because oh, everyone's yeah. faxing them in. There was no like email like it is now. There yeah. was no shareable file where people just put their stuff in and then you pull it out. <laughs> like you had to, it was paper. So people sent it in. I would go in Sunday at like 6 p.m., sleep overnight because, of course, the printer's going to break down. It's going to mess up. (laughs) So I try to do it sometimes Monday morning, like when I first started. And the first time you don't have the status and someone's like, "What? why is status not here? You learn quickly not to ever be that person again. So, And then I think this generation that has so much access to Google and all these things, they don't understand like there was a time not that long ago where we had to cut and paste things together because we didn't have the luxury of goat backspace. Yeah. We had to like put it in together. But I wouldn't take it anyway from that. Like I'm a really good reconciling my accounts and my business because I learned accounting as an account executive in the ad world. Because yeah. you had to do your accounts every month so you could get paid. Right. So all of that, and even now, I look to hire people who have agency experience because I just think it makes you so nimble. It makes you so agile. It makes you creative. You have to deal with, you know, senior people. As a 22-year-old, I was talking to- Deal with the creatives. I mean, yeah, asking on. the creatives to <laughs> redo something. Uh, I used to have things thrown at my head when oh I didn't- gosh. They would throw the boards, you know, yes. or they'd throw them at your head if you, you know, like, what are you, you I can't yeah. believe you couldn't sell this to the client. Exactly. And I was this like- almost six foot black girl walking into this office full of white men who were in their 50s and really didn't have that fear, which I think they kind of liked, but they were pissed off about it. So I'd walk in and be like, so here's what happened. Here are the notes. Such and such is going to come down, but they wanted me to give you a head start on like the changes that are required. And they would literally like throw their racers at me. And I'd be like, (laughs) I'm sorry, but that's what it is. I just didn't know that naivete helped me like go through. And then over time, I was like, that was bold. That was bold. <laughs> well, so talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you just said, okay, so I, I was a six foot, you know, black girl who walked in here. So talk to us a little bit about you being, I mean, first of all, a woman in advertising. I mean, let's yeah. face it. When I watch Mad Men, you know, I was watching it with my husband. He's like, that stuff didn't really happen. I go, oh, hell yes, it did. I mean, I know that was before my time, but it was still happening in my time. Like that was very much a man's world and certainly very much a white man's world. And so I'd love for you just to kind of talk about just how you navigated not only as a woman, but also as a woman of color and like what kind of extra hurdles do you think you had to jump? I'll start with saying like I have had amazing parents who raised me to really be a human, right? So I was raised in the South by this amazing parents who only had me. And my dad was very active in my life. And I think it's important as a young girl to have a father who's very engaged because they definitely teach you a lot. I also had a multi-generational household. My grandmother, my daughter's named after her. She lived with us around time eight until I went to college, the time I was eight until I went to college. And so I really do believe that those influences help give me that confidence I just spoke about that I didn't really know that I needed, but I had. I was a swimmer my whole life. I swam competitively in the South. I think that experience definitely, while I wasn't very cognizant of what was happening, when they would ask for my ID to prove my age because I was really good and I would go to certain swim meets and that was the only one and they needed to prove my age and my parents would get upset 
but they would do it. I didn't really understand at the time what that was, but I now do. And I think those experiences, even though they were in my subconscious, they helped me as I left. You being one of the only, you know, people of color in your school, let's face it, swimming is a more white sport. White sport. Probably. It's very timely that we're talking about it too. My high school, I went to all the school I mentioned, they actually this last week had a series of town halls with the black students and then the student population in general about what's going on. And it was interesting to sit in those meetings with just the black students to hear four decades long of the same stories, mm-hmm. the same things are happening to all of us. And we were trying to educate or I guess explain to our allies on the other side that we live in two worlds. I'm constantly living in two worlds. And that's very normal to women of color, people of color. We grew up knowing that. And my parents actually said to me when I was in 10th grade, we sent you to GPS, which is where I went to school, because the world isn't black. And if you're going to succeed in America, you got to understand how to deal with people that don't look like you. You have to understand that world. And so they were giving me two educations, a very strong academic education. GPS is one of the best schools in the Southeast, but also a social education. You can't be afraid to be the only one, essentially. And so when I went, when I grew up and I went to BU, I will say I did navigate toward more students of color because I had not been around it, especially the Caribbean ones, because I have Caribbean. And my father never spoke Patois until I was like 13. I never heard him speak it because he was, you know, he would say it's hard enough just to be a black man in the South. I can't have an accent. So he was very much only spoke it in the home or with his family. So when I went to college, I was like, wow, look at all these different types of brown people. I'd only seen the brown people that I grew up with. And so that was great. And then I found my way and I had a very diverse group of friends. And then when I graduated and started working, I realized quickly I couldn't stay in Boston. That was one of the disheartening things. I loved my college experience, but Boston as a city was still very racist, segregated. It was very hard for me the first couple of years. And so I had to leave. And, but your question to your question is really, I think, poignant that I put being a woman first before my race. And I've had to kind of reconcile that in the last couple of months. That was kind of a shield for me so that I didn't really see the racism. I know it exists, especially growing up in the South. It was in your face. You would see it. I didn't really recognize it or call it out when I came up north. And I think that I did a disservice to myself. I would always say, oh, they're treating me this way because I'm an outspoken woman. Or they're treating me this way because they're intimidated. I would get feedback, you're very intimidating. Oh, that's because I'm so tall. But I started to realize in the last couple of months, which was like very disheartening, but also very freeing, that microaggressive behavior was because I was black. And that is like, wow. You know, like the people that, I gave a pass to, I started going through all the things that have happened the last five or six years as I've gotten promoted to a very senior executive role and the comments that were said or things that people would question. And I would always give them a pass that is because I was the only woman in the room. Right. But that wasn't why. And so I think this is very important to talk about. We talked about before we started this concept of allyship between people of color and white women and white men and to have both sides call it out when they see it. That's right. You know, um, I think the naivete that I had was a blessing because I don't know if I would have stopped. I would have retreated, I think, because I wasn't confident enough. I didn't have the tools 
I have the tools now. So that's why, you know, I like the opportunity to share my voice with others because I think you need to know that there are people that are with us, you know, to see when the peaceful protests were happening all across the country and there would be a whole line of white women in front of black protesters. I don't think I ever imagined that. You know, my mom did sit-ins at Woolworths, so she remembers there was no allyship. (laughs) So to hear the stories and to now see how the world globally, we're all on the same page that this needs not just Black people marching, but people who aren't brown or people of color. And the same things to happen in the boardroom. Right. You know, we need to have diverse voices at the table because when you have diverse thought, everything becomes greater. And there needs to be appreciation for that. Um, And I think you know, to navigate it as a person of color, you have to call it out. You have to find those allies. You have to look for opportunities and companies that it's part of their mission, that they want to have diverse thought. Well, I think it's, it's so interesting because the dawning that happened to you mm-hmm. uh, just recently, I actually have, you know, talked to women several years ago when the women's movement really started to rev back up again. You know, these were these corporate women who had gotten there and they had fought and they were sort of like, well, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, I didn't have any of that happening. They were sort of like, I made it. And they were like tough and on. They weren't really supportive of other women. They weren't bad or mean. They were just like, I don't know what you're talking about. And they they made it. And I have talked to so many women, you know, at the highest levels who now sort of go, oh my gosh, I didn't get it. And now they have this huge passion for helping women get there that I didn't understand Mm -hmm that my experience was absolutely unique. I just thought, what's wrong with these people? I did it. Why can't they do it? Yeah. Very similar. And that dawning and, you know, when you talk about the allyship just on on so many different levels and how do we make sure, you know, especially as women, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, focused on women, but I just think we have so much power, so much more than we know. So Um, much more. And we have the heart behind it. That's what makes us better. That's right. That we have the ability to be, think logically about the situation and then we can go emotional. And a lot of men try to use it as a negative. And I'm like, that human heart is what makes the world go around. Like there would be no children in the world if women didn't want to give birth, if we weren't human. So like, I do think that women are the most powerful leaders. Let's just look at the epidemic and what's happening. Countries that are being led by women, they're okay. Yep. My husband's you home know? country, New Zealand. Just sent to Ardern. She's yes. she's badass, man. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, it's not a coincidence that they're just women. It's like not a coincidence those countries had scientists that were better or whatever. Like, it's really important to note that these women help other women. Like, if you look at their track record, they're not the only ones. They welcome a room full of women and diversity. They look around and they say, we need representation from the entire country. And that's why they've been able to make sure that everyone was safe in the country, not just a pocket of people. I mean, we literally have 50 states with 50 different plans. Mm -hmm. And that's not the way to lead. We have women and men who are cobbling together programs to keep their families safe. If we only think about our own families, the country won't be safe. So I think you're right. Like women in business can't just think about the fact that they got there. They have to pull back and pull people up with them. And so many of us look up so much, we forget to look back and say, who's coming behind us? 
my grandmother taught me that early on that you just can't be the only one. You have to constantly be thinking about what am I leaving behind, but also who can I pull up with me and maybe push them beyond me. Right. You know, that's having an abundance mindset. Yes. You you knowing that if you pull up others with you, even and push them above you, that there's still plenty for you. And I think that women have been living in a scarcity mindset for so long. Yeah. Understandably so. And I think that that's what needs to, you know, that sea change. And I think it is happening. I actually have a friend who she's actually in the healthcare industry and just risen to the top of her field and is asked to be on corporate boards all the time. And so now when she gets on corporate boards, because she would get on them and she would be the only woman and she would look around and then, you know, a couple of years would go by and she's still the only woman. She's like, what is happening here? Well, now what she does, she won't sign a contract unless she writes into her contract that within one year, they have to hire another woman, another person of color. I love her. And can I meet her? Because... That's my next goal. And I'm always hit with, oh, I get that like, look like, oh, I think we're full right now. That's like code for, oh, we have a woman or we have a person of color. That's right. And I said to her, have you been turned down? She goes, nope. She goes, their eyes kind of go wide and then they're like, okay. And they do it. But it's that really specific action of, okay, we're going to make this change. And at the end of the day, everybody's better for it. You know, the board is better for it. I believe, I think you probably do too. I love that you talked about that's having an abundant spirit. And I think I, at the end of the day, believe in humanity. I think what you just said is so correct. At the end of the day, most humans want to do what's right. They just didn't know. So like those people that they wanted her to be on the board and she's like, okay, I'll do it. But you have to write this in because left to your own devices, you'll never think about it. They probably look a little like, what's going on in a second? And then they think, oh, you know what? That makes sense. And we should have done it. Thanks for the push. You know, I think about this again, last couple of months been very timely. A lot of girls that I went to high school with started to write me and apologize for things that they started to kind of have a dawning on to things that they as now 40 year old plus mothers raising children in different parts of the country. A lot of them left the South. They realized, oh, wait, I was nurtured a certain way that was stepping stone into racism. You know, we took this Civil War class as 11th graders. And I remember going home saying to my parents, listen, they want me to say that it was a war about state law, state rights. And that's not what it's about. So, and my dad was like, just do what this says. Like, you know the truth. And a lot of them started to say, you know what, Joy, I apologize. I remember writing a paper about state nationalism, which is code for racism. Right. And I didn't even realize it. And I'm ashamed. And I'm like, first of all, you were 15 and you were nurtured a certain way. You've never watched any Civil War movie that was taken from a black person's perspective. We watched Go With the Wind. I remember our 11th grade year. You know, I went home and I watched all the movies that were about slavery or Civil War from a black person's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think you're right. This dawning is happening across the board, but there has to be a little humanity. In that moment, I was like, guys, I don't remember half the things you're talking about because part of survival for me was just to like pick my battles and decide what I was going to talk about or not. But also it was 25 years ago. It was a different time. Embrace the moment that you are awake now Mm -hmm. and you're going to do better now. Now that you know better, you'll do better and you'll raise more conscious children and the country will be better. Don't wallow in the self-pity or the embarrassment. I forgive you. Forgive yourself. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) 
you're right on so many levels that there are so many people. They just want to do good. Just the way our country, you don't even know. I'm not racist, but am I anti-racist always? I think I am because I'm an advocate, but like, am I always? And I think about that, you know, and I think about this as I think about, you know, allyship as well. And I look at you know, allyship as, you know, when you're advocating for someone when they're not in the room, saying that's not cool, even when there's not a person who would be offended in the room. Correct. So it's not about you only say something if someone's there and you're like, oh, they might be offended. It's like, no, you can't do that. It's just that subtle stepping into being conscious. Conscious, yeah. And it's hard because I think that Like my CEO, I love him. He definitely is an ally and has been a huge supporter of mine. But I think it's also because he's not American. He's Canadian. He's married to an English woman who's very strong and he's had five daughters. And But he'll say to me like, Joy, I don't get this. This week we had a conversation. He goes, I don't understand. There was a person who wanted us to put like Black Life Matters on our social. And I had a real frank conversation with the executive team and said, I'm not doing that because we don't have a strategy. We haven't as a company decided, are we going to donate on an annual basis to equal justice organizations? Like, what are we going to do? We know that COVID has amplified the fact that there's inadequacies and social injustices in healthcare. Are we going to start to talk about that and donate and help? Like, what's our strategy? I can say Black Lives Matters and put it up there, but it's going to ring very shallow if we don't have a plan. And we need to be upfront that we haven't thought about it. Yeah, We haven't. So that put people in motion, but he was like, oh, I get it. I was like, because it does more harm just to pretend to be an ally. You need to have a plan. Yep. But it was great because he was like, I didn't get it. I don't know how to address it. How do I talk about it? He's also open when I say, I'm tired of educating you. You got to go find out for yourself. Here's a list of books to read. (laughs) Had a discussion the other day just about that. Not leaning on all your friends of color to help educate you. Part of this journey is your own journey, right? It's, yeah. it's my own journey. What do I need to seek out? So I think that's super, super interesting. And I just appreciate you sharing so openly. I watched just a little snippet of your Instagram, I guess, IGTV. IGTV. I'm not really an Instagram person very much, <laughs> but with your daughter who's five yeah. and just having this discussion and just, I think that what I see in my son, even who's 12, is sort of like, Getting them to understand, but they're not feeling it. And I think that there's a lot of hope in that. A hundred percent. You know, and I even talked to my son about one of his friends in third grade was transgender. I mean, it was just, I mean, as a parent, you're like, how do I talk to my, you know, he's just like, it's a little weird, but all right. And then even now we discussed it because now he's in seventh grade. And I said, oh, so how is that? Do people, you know, make fun of her or is she bullied or is there any issue? And he goes, no, why would she no. be? You know, and I think that, yeah. that I heard a little bit of that in your daughter. Like, Yeah, 100%. But I feel like she's been here before. I think she was aptly named after my grandmother. She definitely has her spirit. And it was really hard for me because I think probably like you, Melinda, as a mother, we are raising our children differently than we were raised. I was raised a very much like seen and not heard environment, you know, and I appreciate it. I probably still have a little of that when I raise her, but we're trying very much to give her a voice and let her ask questions and we give the answer or we say, I don't know. And that was very different for how I was raised. It was more like, do what I say, not what I do type of thing. And so in this situation, schools, you know, homeschooling was happening for three months. All this stuff was happening around the world with COVID. And then 
you know, George Floyd happened, which was for New Yorkers, was just very similar to Eric Garner. And it was like, what is going on? You know, going back to what I said at the beginning that I'm not like a marcher. I think I'm not a demonstrator, but I'm always up on what's happening. And typically, I think because I put being a woman before my race, my gender before my race, I would always be like, okay, this is a mess, but we're going to write about it. That's how we're going to protest. But it hit me differently this time. It was that and I think the Central Park situation that happened on Memorial Day. The two of them together hit me differently. So while I was working, cooking, educating, I was trying to keep my daughter kind of just on her schedule. And she goes to an amazing school. They were in school on their Chromebooks from kind of 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And she's very independent. So I didn't really have to help her. And one of the parents had actually of a, a Japanese student in her class had Black Lives Matter behind her in her Chromebook, like on her wallpaper. And every morning at nine o'clock, they have open discussion and all the kids start educating each other. And I could hear a little bit of it. So I started to listen in. It's just like a 15 minute where they kind of get together and they were talking about it and they were educating each other correctly on it, I, I would say. They were talking about bullying. These are five-year-old mm-hmm. kindergartners. In the mouths of babes. Right, and they were talking about how it doesn't make sense because we're taught to keep our hands to ourselves. You know, they weren't making the connection really to death, but they were like, he was being bullied on the street. None of them seen it, but they were, you know, hearing pockets of from their parents are talking about. And my daughter was like, I don't understand. We are all red. And her teacher was like, what do you mean we're all red? She was like, well, if I bleed and you bleed, we're different shades on the outside, but we're all red on the inside. Right. So then, you know, I was talking to my mom. I was trying to remember. I was like, mom, do you remember any time, like the first time I was came home and said something happened at school? She was like, you were six. You were six and a little boy that you beat at the field day called you the N-word. And I was like, what? She was like, yeah. I was like, I didn't know I was that young. So that's when I was like, I have to talk to her. You know, she's a biracial little girl. She's very tall. She's going to be like me. She's going to be like six <laughs> feet tall, probably taller. She's beautiful both inside and out. And I had to, I talked to her father and I was like, we have to have this chat with her. And he was like, Joy, I think that you should have it with her. He didn't feel comfortable saying the right things. And I think that's okay. He's a white American male. And he was like, you know, I don't want to confuse her. And I know I'll never have the experience that she has. And while I have empathy, I want to make sure that she's prepared. So I had the conversation with her by myself and I wasn't going to tape it, but I was more curious than just in those moments as parents, you get emotional. So I wanted to like, remember what I said to her. So I taped it and I was surprised that, like you said, her response and Mm -hmm. kind of like how she was really simple to her. It doesn't make sense why we don't like people who don't look like her. And then when she said that other piece about, which I think is important because it touches on colorism within the brown and black culture, how sometimes we don't like each other. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is very smart. That is part of the problem too. And so it was a great about 12, 15 minute conversation. And I felt like these are the things I want to say for her because she's confident now, but as she gets into teenage years and things come up, I want her to remember this voice she had as a five-year-old, you know, that she was very clear on like, this is right and this is wrong, you know. Yeah, so you can't hurt someone physically or emotionally. 
You don't want people to feel bullied either way. And I just thought it was really hard to do. Like I said, it's the first of many. We'll continue having these conversations. But I thought she's at least prepared for first grade (laughs) if something were to happen. And she knows, you know, come to mommy and daddy if something seems confusing. Like you don't have to feel alone. And again, I think the most important thing is as parents is making sure we have that space for open dialogue. And if anything, that's what I want to take away from that. Dialogue will help keep that, right? I mean, you know, because that innocence and that simplicity, if we could just hold on to that, if we just see that we're all red. I love that. I love that she just said we're all red, not just we all bleed red. I mean, we're all red inside. And I love that. And I think the children get it. And I think what you said, Melinda, is right. It is the hope. I was saying this the other day to Frank. I said, I grew up thinking there could never be a brown or black or woman president ever. Oh, that's just like something you do to make people feel good about. They tried. Right. Ella grew up. Her president was Obama. Yeah. That's the first president she knows. Yeah. She doesn't know any different. Mm-hmm. And now we have a president who's not Obama. We have another president. We have Trump. And she's like, okay, that's Trump. But maybe in her lifetime, early lifetime, before she's even a teenager, there's a woman. The I diversity <laughs> that exists in that thought is like, oh, well, why do you have a problem with anybody? You know, the highest office in our country, anyone can get it. But we never thought that way. So like even in the classroom, like, of course, this person can have that thought. I think you're right. Your son, the transgender situation, he's like, okay, it was a boy, but it's a girl and it's fine, mom. Yeah. People make changes. Yeah. (laughs) Very, very interesting. Oh my gosh, well, Joy, I could go, I'm talking to you all day I know, it's a great morning. I know, it it is, it is. Thank you so much for just being on the show and sharing so openly about your experiences. There is so much hope out there and you exude that. So I appreciate that so much and just you sharing your experiences. And I thank you for uh, your platform. Like, honestly... I thank you for your candor and for your honesty, really, around the need for both sides to come together. It's not just fighting as people of color or fighting as people not of color. It's everybody coming together. And I think it's very courageous for you to use your platform in this moment, in this time, to propel that message forward. So I thank you for that. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. And we certainly will be watching and seeing what you do next. So really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the See It To Be It podcast. For more female empowerment, inspiration, and advice, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter featuring a new woman to watch each week. And check out over a thousand more featured women at onthedotwoman.com. Know someone we need to feature? Reach out at onthedotwoman.com on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.